Good morning, church. Uh, It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the first chapter of Genesis. Uh, We'll spend a little time there. Uh, We're going to do a little little bouncing around today. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for this time, for this place, for the freedom that we have to come and to worship you in song, to worship you in our giving back, to worship you by submitting ourselves to your word. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are in control. Lord, we just ask again that your spirit might be felt and known among us this morning as we study uh, the word. That the truth that you would have us hear would come out and be clear to our, to our hearts and to our minds. It is because of Jesus and through Jesus that we pray. So like I said, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. I just want to set up what we're doing just just briefly, and, and I do, I, I'm, I'm saying that out loud more to myself than to you so that I don't take a bunch of time talking about what we're going to do instead of just doing the thing that we're going to do. Um, we're starting a new series. We're calling it Dogma, Doctrine, and Opinion, and it's it's sort of a series, but it's it's not a series. It'll feel like a series now because the next couple weeks we're going to be we're going to be doing this. Uh, but but what we'll probably do is just as there's maybe a, a break between series or things like that, we're just going to start doing this and we'll do it who knows how long until we're tired of, of doing this in between you know books of the Bible. But uh, just in conversation with a couple different people, Rob in particular, we were talking about the importance of, of knowing that the Bible is 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 all connected, right? And so we talk about our our doctrines or our viewpoints, our, our theological perspective. Um, the words dogma, doctrine, and opinion, are uh, they, they come from somebody. I couldn't find who. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's just become part of theological language. Um, it's kind of Christianese in, in, in theological studies, systematic theological studies. Basically, all this is is it's, rep, it's recognizing that some viewpoints are, are extremely important in what we would call maybe closed-fisted or, do, or dogma, uh, and, and others aren't. And there's a, a, a wide array in between those, those two extremes. And what I mean by that is one of the, the dogmas that we would hold to in the church, meaning the whole church that transcends geography and history, is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we say that we hold that closed fist, or that's a, it's a dogmatic belief, because if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Uh, and, and, you know, we say that, and that sounds scary to say that, because, oh, what about the people who maybe are just confused? If you don't believe it, you probably don't even want to be a Christian, is the type of things. These are things, the dogmas are things that are defined not by individual local churches, but are defined by the church that transcends time and space. 
Okay, these are things that are universally agreed upon across the church. And then there's doctrines, which are the things that are kind of in the middle. And these are things that we hold to and that we believe and that will help define how we think and how we reason. And these things are, are usually found uh, held and, 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 and expressed within local church bodies or maybe the do- denomination. So it kind of gets a little bit a little bit more um, a little bit more broad, where I would say that dogmas are fixed and they're they're usually a little bit smaller. Doctrines kind of get a little bit more explanation into them. We get into a little bit more of the details, and uh, one of the one of the things that maybe a lot of people would hold as a, as a doctrine is the importance of baptism and what baptism actually is and how it should be done. These are things that we would call doctrines, where one church might baptize in a particular way and another church might baptize in a different way. Those are things that are going to help define how we live out this life as Christians um, and, and are found very much in Scripture. But, but we find that there's maybe some interpretation things that we could maybe have conversation about, maybe not debate and fight over, but have conversation about. And then there are opinions. <clears throat> and as dogmas are on the one end extreme, on the one end, the opinions are on the other end as, as extreme. I, I often use the, the uh, try-to-be-humorous example that, that an opinion is what color were Jesus' sandals, right? Something that we don't actually know, we don't really care about, has no bearance on salvation. One of the other ones that was actually talked about in the Middle Ages during what's called the scholastic period of church history when, when the church and the state were the same and there was freedom and there was no persecution, the theologians, they kind of got bored and they debated how many angels can stand on the head of a pin, like a, a needle pin. And that was an, an actual conversation that went on in the church. But it's an opinion. It doesn't matter. It's not found in Scripture. It doesn't bear on how, uh, how Christ affects my life. It's just one of those things that we can have fun talking about. And so some of the time we're going to talk more about dogma. Some of the time we're going to talk about, uh, about doctrines. And every once in a while we'll, we won't spend an entire Sunday on an, an opinion, but we'll maybe talk about how this fumbles itself into an opinion territory. The reality is, last thing before we jump into our, our passage, the reality is, is that this itself is a movable, a movable thing, where some people might take what I would call a, do- a doctrine, and they might put it in the dogma circle, and some might put it in the opinion circle. And this is, this is the difficult thing that we have to deal with, and, and we'll talk about that as we get into different things. Today we're going to talk about the doctrine of creation. And I would say we're going to talk about the doctrine of the creation, primarily kind of the middle ground. We're going to talk about where the, the dogma is and maybe mention a few of the opinion things. So if you want, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Not if you want. If you have your Bible, turn there. It's valuable and important. Genesis chapter 1. And um, I'm, by the way, I'm controlling this up here, so don't blame the guys in the back if they don't keep up. It's because I'm not keeping up. I'm going to read this fast, not because it's not important, but because there's a lot of it. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the, water, over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and and God separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let, the, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters from the, wa- the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God, God called the dry land earth and the, waters were, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years And let them be lights in the expanse. And let them be the lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth. To rule over the day and over the night. To separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse in the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth live living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let, us, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. In every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. 
And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I give. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I think all God's people say amen. Today we're going to talk about creation. And there is so, there's so many things that we could talk about in, in relation to the doctrine of creation. So many things that just, it bleeds into so many aspects of, of our faith. I want to zero in on one particular thing. That God created for his own glory. God created for his own glory. Glory. One of the things that we believe would be dogmatic is that God is creator. God is creator. Now we can argue on, on the methodology and, 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 and from nothing or, or from something and all this kind of stuff that goes into that. But what we do not argue on, what we, what we hold very close to our chest and what we keep to our, to our belief system is that God is the creator. The, the problem, I'm, I'm maybe going to get ahead of myself here, but the problem with uh, evolution is not that it contradicts that God created in six days, but that it contradicts that God is creator. Contradicts that God is creator. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think that there are potentially we could we could differentiate between three uh, accounts of creation in the first two chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis chapter one, verse two and following until the end of chapter or until the beginning of chapter two. And then in Genesis chapter two, there's another creation account. All, all three of these serve very purposed and distinct uh, roles within Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that God created it. And it's, it's my belief, and I think the majority of Christians believe, that this particular verse says that God created out of nothing. That God created out of nothing. That he didn't have a, a, a thing and then just reshape it into a new thing. We do this as, as, as creatures who are created by the image of God. God made us in his own image. Part of his image that, he's, that he is creative. And so we, therefore, are creative at times. And what we do is we take the things that God created and we manipulate them into something new. This is not what God has done. We believe that God creates out of nothing. And I do think that this is extremely important. Because when we think that God creates out of nothing, it gives us the, the recognition. It shows us just how much God has control over so we look at we look at artists in our world today, and, and we could we could make a very a very simple comparison. When we look at artists in our world today, we, we would probably never say to somebody who draws, 
who drew a picture on a piece of paper, who took that and said, "Ah, I don't like that, crumbled it up and threw it away. Nobody would say that person is evil. But so often we look at God as if he does not have the right over the thing that he created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Likely we could look at all of Genesis chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2 as as one contained unit. And then we might look at Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 4 to the end of the chapter and we could see this second creation account. The language changes, the way God is referred to as changes in Genesis chapter 1. God is simply in, in Hebrew El or Elohim, which is the generic term for God. In Genesis chapter 2, he's Yahweh, which is the divine name for God, which is the personal name for God. In Genesis chapter 2, the creation account in Genesis chapter 2 is about how God is personal with his creation. He creates man, and he is intimate with man. Genesis chapter 1 is not about that. It's about something different. It's about something different. Follow me to the end of this sentence because I don't want you to misunderstand what I am saying. When we look at the genre of Genesis chapter 1, we call it polemic mythology. Hold on. Mythology not in the sense that it is made up, but mythology in the sense that every single word in Genesis chapter 1 matters. Mythology is not inherently about something that's made up. We just assume this because the vast, vast, vast majority of mythology is made up because it's about it's about, you know, the the Greek gods, which we don't believe are real or the Roman pantheon, which we don't believe are real. And we have the mythology of how they came into existence. But that's all mythology is, is just how something came into existence. What we believe is that our mythology is right. It's also polemic. Meaning that it was written by Moses. This is what we believe, or at least what I believe, that Moses is the author, at least the principal author of the book of Genesis. We believe that Moses writes this now not as a new thing, but as something that had been transferred through oral tradition. Not just to tell the story, but to tell the story in direct opposition to other ancient Near Eastern uh, creation stories other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. I'm not going to get into all the reasons why we say this, but it's very, very clear if you do a study and you compare Genesis with the Enuma Elish, Babylon, uh, the Artaheus epic, which is Canaanite and the mythology or the myth of uh, Hilipolis, Hilipolis, I think, which is Egyptian. If you take these things and you compare them to what what Moses does in in Genesis, you see a very purposed uh, kind of jab, if if, if we take it maybe that seriously, a purposed kind of poke at your wrong, and this is what's right. It widens for us our understanding of what is actually being said. And the primary thing that we take from Genesis chapter 1 primary thing that we take from Genesis chapter 1 is that God creates not because of chaos, but God creates because he is God and he is good and he is loving. This is the primary thing we take from Genesis chapter 1. We can talk about the six days of creation. 
But if the six days of creation are the only thing you walk away with, out of Genesis chapter 1, you have missed so very much of the creation story. I'm not arguing that there's not six days of creation. I'm arguing that there's more to the story. If you want to hear my, my whole spiel on Genesis chapter 1, where I go through all of the, the account, you can, you can go back on our website and go to our Genesis series and find that first, that first one. I'm not going to get into all the details. But in the Enuma Elish, creation happens because there's these two gods. I don't remember their names. I don't really care. These two gods who, have, have, who create like semi-gods, and these semi-gods are, are teenage children, essentially teenage children, and they're annoying. And the two older gods, they're like, we don't like them. Let's get rid of them. And so they go and they call them together and they kill one of them. And that guy's body becomes earth. It's fantastic, right? But what this teaches us is that, is that the earth is chaotic. It's chaotic. And, and, and we don't have, that's not surprising. Obviously, the earth is chaotic. Just look around. The earth is, the earth is chaotic. The earth is violent. Humans come out or are, are, are grown at first as plants because of the blood that was spilled by the gods. So chaos, violence, hatred, and annoyance are all the principal things in the Enumi Elish. But it says in Genesis chapter 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, not because he, not because he had to, not because there was a fight, not because he got annoyed with his, with his angels or his, his under-gods, not that there are under-gods in, in our, our belief system, but because he is creative, because he is good. And then what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is that God creates this space, this space where he is going to place the capstone of his creation. By the way, that's us. When God says it is very good. It's only after he has made man and put them as dominion, as, as the capstone of his creation. And so God, he creates this space. He pushes back darkness. Do you, has anybody ever taught their children that they should be scared of the dark? No? Because we all inherently know it. It's built into our DNA that darkness represents evil. Darkness is scary. To prove it, there's All Hollow, or what is it? Not All Hollow Weekend. That's Halloween in just a little bit. But 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 Cedar Point has the Halloween Hollow Weekends, right? Hollow Weekends, is that right? I should know that. I'm going to talk about it. But the primary time when those things take place is not in the middle of the day because it's bright out. It's not scary. They do it at night because it's scarier. Because there's a fear of the unknown and all. We don't have to be taught that darkness represents evil, and that's what God is doing. He creates light, and he pushes back the darkness. He says, you don't have freedom and, and reign in this place. This is mine. Water is chaos in the ancient world. God creates this expanse. He, he pushes the waters above and the waters below, and if we take this literally, then we have to believe that as we look up into the sky, there's, a, there's some kind of... Uh, some kind of substance that's holding back. Why is the sky blue? Because there's water above us. Now, we don't believe this because that's not the point of Genesis. It's not the point of Genesis that, that there, there's this expanse above us. We're not flat earthers. Sorry. But what, what this represents for us is that God takes this, this idea of chaos, that in his creation there is only chaos because he hasn't ordered it yet. And he goes, 
he goes, he blows up a balloon in the middle and he says, this is where I'm going to put my creatures. He pushes back chaos and he says to chaos, sit, stay over there. You don't get to go where you want. Again, we know this inherently. We, yes, we've, we've conquered the seas. We built big, huge, massive boats and we go across the water, ships, whatever you want to call them. We, we, we win, we, we've harnessed the waters and made these wheels power our cities. Anybody ever stopped a hurricane? We don't have control over nothing. Water is still chaos. And yes, hurricanes are principally water and wind. The ancient world, they understood this, especially near the Mediterranean Sea, which is volatile. It could be a perfectly bright day out, and because of the terrain and all this kind of stuff, you could be out in the middle of the water, all of a sudden there's this huge storm, and you're dead. Water is scary. And God says, no, it's not scary. It's under my control. He makes plants. He makes birds. He makes animals. He makes all things. He makes all things, and it's, and it's absolutely stunning. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul mentions something. Now, this isn't his main point, but I'm going to use it because he's referencing this. He says, for, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they were, are without excuse. And he's talking about something else, but he's, he's connecting himself to this, to this point that, that God's creation isn't just there in an existence. It wasn't just something that he did, but God, God imprinted himself on his creation. And the simple fact that we have breath, breathe, we know that God exists. Like I said, the chief problem with evolutionary theory is that it's not six days that it's God didn't create. And all of, all of this is just happenstance. How can you possibly look at creation and think other, other than God is creator? There is so much beauty and vastness and craziness in creation. Simply look at the, the morning. Every single day the sun rises. It's not accidental. Loved ones of God. There's a reason why when Jesus raises from the dead, he raises from the dead in the morning. So that every single day of your life, as you wake up and you look out of the window, you go, the sun has risen. Amen? To the beauty of his universe, just think about the stars and the galaxies and the black holes and all this stuff. It screams God. So much so that we are without excuse, Paul tells us. But then we turn just a little bit forward in our, in our time here in Genesis. We're jumping back here, but Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. I quote this all the time because this is such a principle verse to how we should understand the Bible. It's, God's created this beautiful thing. He, he put mankind in, in, the, in the center of his creation put, as the pinnacle, the capstone. And by the way, he did that not because man is special but because he is good and he deserves glory from his creation. You are put on this earth to glorify God first, primarily, and always. And you know what we do? Genesis, or Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord, the Lord saw the wickedness of man 
was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every time I quote this verse, I say how, how, how Paul used, or how, how Moses uses all these big encapsulating words, right? Every intention, only evil continually. Let me interpret. You have done nothing good of God. It's really that simple. The man had gotten so bad, so wicked, that there was no goodness left. And we turn to Genesis and we look at the flood and we say, what a wicked God destroying the whole earth. You evil painter crumbled up your artwork and threw it away. This isn't even artwork that has turned its back on it. But you know what? Genesis chapter 7, 8, and 9 is not about God's wrath and justice. It's about his mercy for allowing us no, not allowing us for purposing to save us in the midst of our wickedness. And this goes all the way into the New Testament. This goes goes all the way into your life. You, a sinner, a sinner. Every intention of your thought and your heart says only evil continually. I can just about guarantee it. 
And instead of destroying you as he rightfully and justly should and could, God instead sent his son to suffer and to die on the cross for you. Amen. And this is to God's glory. Isn't it? As we look at creation, we see the intricacy and the amazing nature of what God has done in creation. As we think about what we are, what we have done, and we think about just how amazing God is for redeeming and rescuing us, it is all to his unfathomable glory. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, this is about preeminence of Christ. It says, for by Christ, for by Christ, him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And this is the big one, and for him. Everything that God has done in this universe, everything that God has done through creating sustaining and saving and calling and drawing each one of us to him is for his glory. Because as we look at creation, we can see God's goodness. As we look at our salvation, we can see his mercy and his grace and we can do very little else and to praise and to glorify who he is. You know, we use the word amen from time to time. And I was reading this book, and, and it's called The Pastor by Eugene Peterson. He talks about he talks about how his church started this started this practice early on that that when he finished praying or from time to time, somebody would say amen. The reason why is because we're concurring with the truth that we're hearing. We're not just, we're not just saying it because it's fun to say and it gives us energy. We're saying it because the thing that we just heard is right, and we want to say it along with the person who's just said it. We do this with, with praying as well. In our, in our house, we, we, we all collectively say amen at the end of whoever prays it's just something that we've done. But we could purpose to do this as we pray together, as we pray as a as we pray as a church family, as we pray as individual families, as we pray in a group. You know, it's not just me saying things. It's not just me praying. Yeah, I might be the only one talking out loud, but I sure hope that you're participating in the prayers as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and amazed by who you are. Lord, we pray that our our belief and our understanding that you are creator would be implanted into our hearts that as we think about so many different things and we recognize just 
how much you deserve control and sovereignty in this world. We also pray, Lord, that we would understand that everything that you do, everything that you do from the beauty of the flower to the life of the sparrow to even the rain and the storms is ultimately and always for your glory. And that as we, as we meditate on and think about the work that you wrought for salvation in our hearts and in our lives, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness. We thank you and we praise you that you didn't, in justice, in righteousness, didn't cast us away, but instead sent your Son to suffer and to die on a cross so that we might be yours. Help us to know your good nature. Father, it's in your precious holy and wonderful Son, Jesus' name.